This is a Difference Makers podcast from SavannahNow.com, where Savannah's community leaders come to talk about what they do, how they do it, and why. Today's Difference Maker is someone Savannians have built a deep connection to over the last decade, and whose knowledge and perspective they are looking to increasingly now during the coronavirus pandemic. We're talking about local physician, newspaper columnist, and novelist, Dr. Mark Murphy. Difference Makers is presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Savannah Morning News have had a number of beloved column voices over the years, from Tom Coffey to Bob Morris and Tom Barton to Bill Doors. Another tremendous local writing talent is Dr. Mark Murphy. Murphy's expertise is as a storyteller, and he draws readers in the way a fly fisherman does hungry trout. Murphy is our latest difference maker. My name is Adam Van Brimmer, and I host this podcast as part of my duties as the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Due to the closure of our office and studio, of course because of the coronavirus pandemic, we recorded this episode over the telephone, so we apologize in advance for the sound quality. And thanks to producer Zach Dennis for making it sound as good as it does. As for the genesis of the Difference Makers podcast, we launched this initiative two years ago as a way to feature the men and women who are making a difference in our community. They hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. You probably recognize the names or at least the organizations these Difference Makers represent. This podcast is a chance to learn what makes them successful. Thank you for listening. Pleased to be joined for Difference Makers today by Dr. Mark Murphy, who is definitely, a, I guess you would call him a renaissance man, right? He's a, he's a successful doctor. He is a successful novelist. He is a wildly popular columnist with us here at Savannah Morning News for, for a decade now. And right now, and the reason I asked him in was he started a series of columns that is, it's basically a personal journal looking at the the whole experience that he's dealing with in terms of the coronavirus as a physician. And we're going to get pretty deeply into that down the road, but I wanted to go ahead and start with Mark where we always start these difference makers, and that's talk biography. And Mark is a, as anybody who's familiar with his work knows that he is a Savannah he grew up here. And he has a deep love for his hometown. And Mark, let's start there. Can you, uh, if you had to summarize what it was like to to grow up here and and spend most of your life here, where would you where would you start? Well, you know, my dad came here actually when he was stationed at Hunter as an Army surgeon back in the uh, late '60s during the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, so that's that's how I first uh, became introduced to this town. I, you know, they. they a lot of people say that if you're not native Spanish, you weren't born here, but and I wasn't, but I came here at, at age six. Um, so I'm, I'm, and I married a, a, a born in Savannah girl, so uh, so I, I guess by by uh, familial uh, default, I'm uh, I'm also a native Savannah in that regard. But you know, I, I grew up uh, actually grew up in Windsor Forest. Uh, well, my dad was in the, in the army. Um, I uh, went to Windsor Forest Elementary School for a couple of years, and I uh, went to Calvary. My granddad wanted me to get a a, a, a faith based education, so he, we uh, we ended up going to Calvary. That's where I ended up graduating from high school, and it was a great place to grow up. I mean, I you know I we, we moved to Arsley Park when I was when I was in second grade, right after we moved out of Windsor Forest, and um, so it's a good place to bike around and get to know friends. And there are friends that I made back then that are still friends of mine today. As a matter of fact, kids that I hung out with. Uh, growing up in second, third, and fourth grade that I still know, um, still am friends with. Uh, so it, it was a, 
a wonderful place. I, you know, going back to I, you know, biking down to Daffin Park, seeing the uh, Savannah Braves play back in the day, the, the predecessor to the to the to the Bananas, um, uh, and uh, just it was just a, a really nice place to to be a kid uh, when I was when I was little. So um, I enjoyed it, and I, and I love the city. I, I love it even more now than I did when I was growing up. Um, so that's it's kind of my roots. I, I, and I have a sentimental attachment as well. I I love the coast. I love the ocean. Um, Thought about being a marine biologist at one point, uh, and uh, I decided that my romantic view of that was not nearly as uh, it was. I was not drunk, so uh, uh, I, I didn't. I uh, didn't. I wasn't independently wealthy. You know, he invented the aqualung. People always thought was, you know, I'd like to be Jacques Cousteau, but it's, it's easy to be Jacques Cousteau when you when you uh, <laughs> when you've got the millions of dollars in the bank. Um, uh, but it, but the pragmatist to me uh, maybe look at other things uh, in life and, and end up going into my father's profession, going into medicine. And it's been a really really rewarding and fulfilling career as a healthcare professional. It's it's a privilege to be able to take care of people. Um, and that's the way I look at it now. That we have to come back to my hometown and take care of people and hopefully get a few of them well is a, is is a is a blessing for me and for everybody else. When you talk about growing up here and growing up in a neighborhood that is is pretty tight knit and a lot of kids on the streets and you're close to Daffin Park and you mentioned the water. Uh, how much sports did you play? How much um, time did you spend on the water or around the water and in the creeks? Are you fishing? What uh, kind of talk us through that part of it? So, you know, my, we, my, yeah, of course, in Savannah, sort of a, a requisite that you have uh, some sort of watercraft. We had a series of boats named after our dog, um, the Blossom 1, the Blossom 2, and the Blossom 3 um, uh, that my dad named them. Actually, I guess my dad named them with, with the kids' ascent. But um, but we so we just spent a lot of time on the water. I grew up um, and going to Wausau and Osama Island and fishing around these areas with my dad. Uh, you, you know, we, we, uh, we actually I live on the water now. So, um uh, my dad comes to my house to fish still to this day. Um, so I, that part was a big part growing up. Uh, we, we don't, like a lot of kids back in those days, and we spent, you know, there was no internet. We didn't watch a whole heck of a lot of TV. We were outside a lot. I was biking all over the place. Um, and that was, you know, I, I organized sports. I was a, I was a pretty abysmal athlete. Um, it, it was, uh, <laughs> I I, uh, I I mean I, I like sports. I enjoy this day. I'm a big college football fan, big college basketball fan. Uh, but uh, we, you know I had to, I I played football in high school and ran track, but I had to work my way up to mediocrity. Um, it was uh, it was not, I was not an exceptional athlete. My brother was a very good athlete, and my sister's a good athlete. And I, I just got uh, uh, dealt the short end of the genetic stick there. Um, both literally and figuratively, I'm five eight. My brother's like six four. But um, but uh, but but the, but the but the bottom line is, I you know a lot of my my sports type activities were were recreational things like that. Bike around the neighborhood. You know, we played baseball in fields and things, and climb trees and you know that sort of thing. Yeah, that that's the sort of stuff I did. And and then was it going to see the sand, going to see what what used to be the Sandman, which is currently the Bananas. At that time, was the Savannah Braves play. That was always a big deal. I saw Hank Aaron play uh, an exhibition game down there, and actually got a baseball that he had a great he had out of Grayson Stadium uh, back when he was playing. Um, that's a cool memory for me. That's that sort of thing, you know. And so it was uh, not, not as much organized sports. I, I remember in fourth grade, um, I was playing the baseball game, and this friend of mine who was a left-handed hitter, they always put me in right field because I was I was such a bad fielder. Um, but this left-handed hitter who always hit the ball over the fence. Uh, hit the ball. I mean, I was. I remember I was counting clovers out in the field. And I found a four-leaf clover and I picked it up. And all of a sudden, I heard the bat crack and I looked up and I couldn't see the ball because the sun was in my eyes. So I put my glove up to shield my eyes from the uh, from the sunlight. And the, the the ball went into my glove and the guy was out. 
and he was so mad because I think it was the first time I got anybody out all year. Um, yeah. So that's uh, what they call a that, great that, play. That's yeah, that was, yeah, it was completely, completely accidental. Um, but, but you know, that's, <laughs> that was the extent of my, uh, uh, of my athletic uh, notoriety when I was a kid. Now I did become a pretty fair air hockey player at one point in my life. So that's, uh, that's one, my one claim to fame. I'm a pretty damn good air, air hockey player. So there you go. It's funny you mentioned that about uh, about baseball. Is as, as an adult, I played on some softball leagues, and I was such an abysmal fielder that if a left-handed hitter was up, they put me in left field. But if a right-handed <laughs> hitter came up, they flipped me over to right field. That way, it right. minimized any chance of, of me getting in there. So yeah. I can uh, I can appreciate where you're coming from. Your interest in medicine, your interest in writing, where did that start? Where did that come from? So my, my dad's a surgeon, as I mentioned. Um, and, you know, so he, he would, I would hear those war stories from him uh, about the OR, about things he saw when I was a kid growing up. And I actively resisted going into medicine, actually. Um, I, I, I really – my mom was an English teacher, and I really enjoyed – reading a lot, read everything, uh, read everything I get my hands on my whole life. Um, and when I was a kid, I was, I mean, I was reading all, all, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, anything I get my hands on. Um, and, uh, and enjoyed writing, making up stories and writing things, uh, the time I was a little kid. And, uh, and then when I got, it's kind of weird because I was just, I had this unusual humanities science dichotomy. I, I love science. I, I love reading and writing. Um, so I published a paper in my in my class when I was in fourth grade that I also was voted most scientific in fifth grade. And um, that's just sort of the natural outgrowth. What I ended up doing was a natural outgrowth of my interests. I just enjoyed both things. And it's funny, um, when I was when I was in um, high school, I went to governor's honors in, uh, in, in communications, which is sort of English. Basically, mm-hmm. and I was editor of the high school paper, but um, but I also was captain of the science team and the quiz bowl team, and and so one of the things that I was wrestling with was what do I do with my life? And I looked at being a marine biologist, and I looked at being a doctor, and I looked at being a lawyer, and I looked at being an English professor, and, and ultimately it was my English teacher in high school, Lynn Davis, who uh, still lives here in Savannah, uh, who told me, you know, you, you really ought to think about medicine because. If you get out of the sciences, they'll never let you back into the lab. But if you, but you can always write, and that yeah. was the way I resolved that dichotomy. So that's how I ended up going into medicine. And that's that's how I figured it out. And I can tell you, if I'd had the choice between journalism and medicine, well, in college I probably would have stayed with journalism. But if I could go back now, like I definitely would have went to medicine. Just, just <laughs> the way the way things have gone in our in our profession over the last twenty five years. I think uh, you you definitely went the right direction. <laughs> You know, um, it's, it's, it'll tell you something funny though. It's, it's, it's for me. It was all a matter of interest. It was there was never any pragmatism to it. It was, it was a matter of what I liked, and 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 you know what I enjoyed doing. Uh, so I, I mean, you know, I didn't know what gastroenterologists did when I decided to gastroenterologist. No, I like the GI tract. <laughs> so it's kind of ridiculous, but that's that's the reason I picked it. Difference Makers Podcast is a great way to learn about Savannah and those who make the city tick. But there's a catch, of course, the two-week wait between episodes. Keep up with all that's going on in our town on a more regular basis by signing up for our free newsletters. We deliver an opinion page newsletter daily, and our news team does likewise. And for the foodies and Georgia Southern fans among the audience, weekly newsletters on those topics are available as well. Visit savannahnow.com slash newsletters now to get those newsletters delivered straight to your email inbox. Again, that's savannahnow.com slash newsletters. We 
left town and went off to college. Um, what, uh, what was your college experience like? And was it you were pretty much on the, on the path and stayed on the path or were there any digressions here and there? Uh, I went straight through. I mean, I, you know, I went to Georgia, um, it's funny. I I I was choosing between the University of Georgia and the University of North Carolina for undergrad, and um, I, I had actually decided to go to UNC and had paid my housing deposit and registered for classes. And then this guy named Herschel Walker signed with the University of Georgia in the spring of my senior high school, and I really enjoyed watching college football. And I thought, you know, I'd like to see that guy play for a few years. And so I I just changed my mind and went to Georgia instead in the honors program, and. Um, and really enjoyed it. It was a great experience. Um, I, I, you know, I was there. We only lost we went 43 4 one during the four years I was there. I say we, I wasn't playing, obviously, but um, but I still feel like I'm part of that whole deal. Um, but uh, you know, so I really became a huge Georgia football fan back then, and uh, that was also the, the sort of the period of the birth of the Athens music scene. So the B52s were kind of getting going then and REM and, you know, all these great bands. Uh, so I became a big fan of college, of college of rock and roll. Um, and, uh, still am actually, um, got to know a few of these people over the years. It was, it was a phenomenal time to be in Athens and to be, uh, and to be at the university of Georgia. And, uh, that was, you know, that was my undergraduate experience. I really, really, really had a good time in Athens. I, I go back, I'm a season ticket holder now and I go back every year, at least three or four games. And, um, that was a blast. I, I, I sometimes say you spend the whole rest of your life trying to get back to that because you have all the rights of being an adult and none of the responsibilities. It's a pretty phenomenal time in anybody's life. I wonder if it was four years later and Michael Jordan was signing to play basketball at UNC, or I guess that would be three right. years later, if that would have had the same influence on you. Although you probably didn't know anything about Michael Jordan like you knew about Herschel Walker before he got to college. Well, I, I didn't, but here's a, here's the ironic thing. So I ended up going to UNC for residency and fellowship. After all, I ended up in Chapel Hill for, for six years. And, um, and so uh, we got to see some really great UNC basketball teams during that time, with, you know, Sam Perkins and all those guys. And, you know, it was, uh, so, so it was, um, it was a very, um, that was a great time too. I, I, I was, when I was at UNC, I think we won two national titles, when I was there and um, one of the final four several times, Dean Smith, uh, Dean Smith's daughter lived in the back of, of us. So I got to see, meet Dean Smith a couple of times. And so, you know, I get the best of both worlds ultimately. Uh, and uh, that was a, another great experience. And in fact, honestly, oddly enough, Georgia played my senior and undergraduate school, Georgia played Michael Jordan's UNC team uh, and beat them in the, in the, in the, on the way to the final four. Um, so, so again, that, the one, the one time that Georgia went to the final four was when I was an undergraduate at Georgia. So, you know, it was, I've had good experiences both places. I say maybe they want you to come back, uh, at least make a cameo. Maybe you get them back <laughs> on the basketball, basketball ride. Right. Up there in Athens. So, yeah. um, so coming back home, uh, you, you returned to Savannah in the, in the mid nineties and, yeah, yep. raring to go as a doctor. Yeah, so that's you know that's it's a, a. I'll try to truncate this. I tend to be verbose. So I'll try to make this as brief as I can. I, I'd always planned to be in academic medicine. Uh, I really didn't plan to do private practice. Uh, I was a basic science researcher doing cytokine research for inflammatory bowel disease. And um, during my first year of GI fellowship, my wife gave birth to a child, our second child, who's now. 28 years old, and um, and she got cancer. Uh, she got lymphoma, 
which is luckily it was Hodgkin's lymphoma, which has a pretty good prognosis. But um, but she had to go through chemotherapy and radiation and in a couple of surgeries, and uh, you know she was pretty sick for a while. And uh, the bottom line is, at the end of that, I asked her what she wanted to do, and she said, "Well, you know, you know we had good friends move away, and and her support was down here in Savannah. Her mom was here, and my dad was here." And, uh, she said, well, I really, I kind of want to go back home in case this comes back. And, uh, so after I finished fellowship, we started looking at ways to come back to Savannah and uh, be in her family. And that, it, primarily because of that, and it was ultimately ended up being the best thing. She's fine. She's done well. Um, uh, she, you know, she's, uh, she got breast cancer somewhere in the middle there, but that she was cured of that too. So, um, uh, and, you know, has done very well actually. And, and, and we've been able to grow up in her family and have our kids raised which, around their grandparents. And so all in all, it was a good thing. And I was still able to put together the kind of practice that I wanted, which is a blessing. I, I've been, I've been blessed to work with some very, very good people. Uh, I've got some good dots in my, in my, in my group. You mentioned, you mentioned your wife, you mentioned she's local. Where did where yeah. did you two where did your romance begin? So another funny story. Uh, we we she came. I was, we were at Calvary. She I met her in sixth grade. I told her a really bad mm-hmm. joke in the lunch line one day. Um, that didn't do a whole lot for us <laughs> as a couple, but um, it was terrible. As a joke about uh, her, her name was Daphne Dillon back then, and I, I asked her for her dad's name was Matt. You know, in Gunsmoke, um, and uh, she said, "You don't know how many times I've heard that joke," and it just kind of shot me down. So I didn't talk to her again for a year after that, and uh, that's the first thing I ever said to her. And uh, but, but but ultimately, in eighth grade, uh, we did start kind of quotes unquote dating. We went to a concert uh, in ninth grade, I think, um, uh, a Kiss concert. Oddly enough, my parents drove us and uh, had this uh, very um, slow burning. Eighth and ninth grade kind of romance where we just kind of hung out together and played cards and you know my parents drove us on dates and stuff and and uh, but we we've been together ever since um, I mean really when we were thirteen when we first kind of got together and uh, I, you know she's, she's the only person who put up with me um, so uh, I, I've been very blessed again to have her as as my partner in all this and she's very she's very tolerant. Um, I'm a little hyperkinetic, and she's a she's a she's a stabilizing influence. And I, again, I, I just couldn't ask for a better partner. She's uh, definitely the love of my life, and and uh, and the, the best person I ever met in in my entire existence. And I'm not joking; I really believe that. I mean, I, she's a much better person than I am. Uh, much more, much more uh, patient, much more tolerant, and um, and uh, just has uh, is, is been a real rock. Um, for, for us and for our kids. So. I'm always fascinated by people who were childhood sweethearts or, or high school sweethearts, childhood sweethearts. You, mm-hmm. you know, you, you've known each other for so long. You, you know, I've been with my wife for, for 20 years, but, mm-hmm. you know, we were full-grown, mature adults when we met. Is it right. a thing where you almost can anticipate what each other's thinking? I mean, what is the – you don't have anything to compare it to, but what is that bond like? What is that connection like? It's great. Uh, it's funny that my my kids when they were growing up used to say, you, know, you and mom are like one person. Like you always say and think the same thing. And it's like, well, what do you expect? You know, we've been together since we were you know, barely pubescent. So, yeah, um, you know, and we've got the same value system and, you know, we've grown up around each other and, and you know, I think reinforced our, you know, the way that we believe about things. Uh, but, it, you know, we, I mean, I, I again, I just, it, it's a great relationship primarily because it's it's kind of like the gift of the Magi. You know, I've always 
been raised to think that you, in a relationship like this, you think about the other person first. Um, you always put their needs above your own. And, and thankfully, my wife feels the same way. And so um, we're always looking out for each other. I, we haven't had an argument in 15 years. I mean, it's just there's just nothing. The arguments we have, you know, when we do have them, are usually stupid. There are things that don't really matter. And, and I think as you get older and a little bit more mature, you realize how stupid those arguments are and how, you know, how utterly useless they are in terms of you know, getting anything accomplished. And so we, we just, you know, we just get along. Um, but it's, it's a great relationship. I, I really, it's been the defining relationship of my lifetime, obviously. And, um, uh, I, you know, I, I just, I can't say enough about her. Uh, that, that people are going to think this is corny. Uh, but I always say, you talk about your wife so much to make us all look bad. I'm not trying to make anybody look bad. We just have a really great relationship. And, um, anybody that knows us, I think can tell that we're a team. You know, we've always, we were, when I was president of the book festival a couple of years ago, um, my wife came on as an assistant to the director. And when I stepped down as president of the book festival after two years, my wife, my wife stepped down as well. And they, I think they were more sad to have her go than me um, because she's <laughs> such a, a hard worker and such a reliable person. You know, she, she, again, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's very good. We, we're, we're very happy with each other. So uh, a decade and a half into practicing here, you get into writing. What kind of sparked that and what was your, what was your approach when you got started and how has it evolved over the, over the last decade? So um, I'll tell you a funny story. I, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, as, as I said before, I, I edited my high school paper for three years, um, was a, a editor in chief for two. I was actually the um, president of the Georgia Scholastic Press Association, my senior in high school. So that's a statewide high school newspaper organization. Everybody thought I was going in journalism. Um, and, um, you know, I said, wouldn't governor's honest communication. So I've, I've been a writer my whole life. I, that's just something I've always done. It's, it's, it's part of me. But it got sublimated into academic writing, uh, you know, writing textbook chapters and in, in, in academic papers when I was in training. And then during the first years of my med- private medical practice, I was doing a lot of that. Um, and it's, it, that's not hard for me. It's easy. I, did, I just actually just finished a, a medical textbook chapter this year, um, another one. Um, so that, that's just not very difficult, um, but it's also not very creative. And um, what kind of got me back in a creative aspect of writing was one episode. Um, one of our good friends from uh, residency died unexpectedly at age 38 um, of overwhelming pneumococcal sepsis. My wife had just talked to her the day before on the phone, but she died unexpectedly went to the funeral and I wrote a short story after that just and the first Lisa was her name and you know Lisa always said you really ought to get back into writing you know that the small things you do write I really enjoy and so she kept encouraging me to write creatively again and I had not done it in a long time and so I wrote a short story um, about her funeral and basically this short story in the short story that she comes back to her own funeral and you realize that at the very end that she's a spectator at a funeral and I sent that to her husband um, and her husband wrote me back and said, thank you for this. It really means a lot. He said, you know, Lisa would want you to submit this to someplace for publication. So I did. I submitted a short story publication to a short story competition and ended up winning the competition. So I got published in a collection of short stories, and, and that kind of got me started creative writing again. And then the, the newspaper thing kind of came as a result of <laughs> – kind of funny. I, I kept writing letters to the editor, and Tom Barton used to be the, the editor-in-chief uh, of the editorial page um, – uh, Tom Barton and I ran each other at a party one night, and he looked at me and said, I, they, somebody introduced us, and he said, are you the Mark Murphy that always writes letters to the editor? And I said, yeah. 
so that you don't publish, but like, you know, one every four. He said, well, they got to be publishing one every day. So he said, if you write a column, I publish that. And I said, would you pay me? And he said, nope. So I said, all right, I'll do it anyway. Um, so I did. And so that was 10 years ago, and I've been writing columns of the paper ever since. So that's kind of how I'll get started. Wow. And then to take that column, take that thousand words, or right now I think I'm holding you back by, by making you write shorter, but to, but to take that yeah. and then look at writing novels, 35,000 words, what – well, how did you make that, that transition? How did you evolve yeah. that? So uh, I, I like telling stories. You know, I'm I'm Irish, and you know, my dad's a great storyteller, and uh, you know, we all are. Um, uh, I think you know, my family, and um, and I, I just I had some. I had basically had a couple of ideas. I'd always wanted to write a novel, uh, and the, the Shadow Man came out of a an idea that I was actually coming back from a medical meeting, and somebody. Uh, ran into my car and then drove off, and I was so irritated. And I thought about running the guy down and flashing my lights at him and getting all mad. And I thought, you know, that's kind of stupid because what if this guy has a gun? And then I thought, well, what if this guy is a serial killer? <laughs> and so it was kind of what what uh, what uh, my friend Tess Garrison calls the what if moment. You know, where you have a what if scenario that is the kernel of a story, um, and uh, and and then you kind of take it from there and. and flesh it out, build an entire plot line around it. And that's what I did with the Shadow Man. I just felt initial what if moment, which is the the seminal opening scene in that novel, and then just sort of extrapolate it from there into the entire plot. And uh, that's you know, ultimately ended up being what I always do. And I get ideas for novels all the time. I've got to, I've got to keep them, I write them in my phone. Um, in the notes section of my phone, I'm always, I'll write, I get an idea and I'll write something. I'll write, I hear a phrase or think of a phrase or look at a description. I think, oh, that's a good thing to put down. And so I'll, I'll write it in my phone. And uh, and that's and that's where I get my ideas. I've got a, I mean, I, I've got enough ideas for novels that I could write. If I had time to write, I could, you know, write a, a novel every six months for five years. Um, I just kind of pick the one that I interests me the most at that time and go with that. You could do the James Patterson or the Clive Custler and just do outlines and then farm them out to people to ghost write. No, I, I wouldn't want to do that. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, James Patterson's come to the book festival a couple of times and I've talked to him and he does do that. The only thing he really has an interest in is his young adult books now. He doesn't really, he doesn't really write the other ones anymore. He told me that point blank. But for him, it's an industry. And see, that's the thing. The part I like about it is the creative part. I don't, I don't want somebody else to write. I don't want to just come up with ideas of how other people write them because I'd be rewriting them anyway. I mean, I'd be, I'd be, I'd rewrite the entire thing they wrote because you know, I, I, there's a certain way I want to tell the story. And that for me, it's cathartic to be able to write something down and describe it, to be able to fit the pieces together or to have the plot work out. I'm working on this novel right now. It's a, another murder mystery set in Savannah. And, um, and it's, you know, it, it's fun that I look forward to being able to do it because it's not what I do every day. It's, it works a different part of my brain. It's, you know, kind of like when you go home and go running or if you go fishing or something, you know, something different. Uh, it's something invigorating that you get to do that is creative and, and, and you know, some people knit or some people paint. And for me, writing is that creative thing that, that gets me doing something different with my head. So uh, so I enjoy it. I wouldn't want to just form out my ideas. That would defeat the purpose. Process of long form writing. Did you just kind of, you just kind of figure it out as you went along or did you have, did you have mentors? How did you go about figuring out how to, how to actually go through the process of producing a novel? Uh, you know, it's like, I, I went to the Iowa Summer Writing Festival a couple of times to kind of to, you know, that's a really good festival. You know, Iowa's got a great creative writing program, and um, so I went to the Creative Writing Festival a couple of times and got some basic ideas from some professors up there. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it, you know, I just I I just it's a matter of just 
looking at what style you want to do and, and you know what what kind of thing you want to put down and, and then just emulating other people like I, I'm a big fan of the way that Stephen King plots things and so you know a lot of my thriller writings that will kind of mirror Stephen King in fact um, the protagonist of my last novel not that last one shot in the shadow man actually was is his last name was King and that was an homage to Stephen King um oh, Stephen King but but, but yeah, but I, you know, I just and I, and I, you know, I actually had met Stephen King a couple of times. Yeah, I met him when he came down to Savannah a couple of years ago. It's funny because um, he, uh, he, he, everybody thinks that he's creepy or scary or weird. He's just, frankly, he's a, he's like an old grandpa who just you know, he loves his grandkids and he, uh, he just likes to tell stories. You know, he's not creepy or scary at all. But uh, but getting back to the point, I the the, the process for me was less formula, formalized and more emulation. It's just you, you, you read other people, you you look at their style and the way they tell stories. I mean, I'd love to be able to write something as pithy and dense as Cormac McCarthy. You know, that, you know, every time I read one of his novels, it's a challenge because every single word has meaning and he's chosen them all so carefully and I'm not nearly as gifted as he is. Uh, but the bottom line is, you know, I do find myself writing a little bit more like Cormac McCarthy when I'm reading his stuff, you know, and you, you, you tend to pick up on what you're around. And, uh, so I think that's part of it. When I, I wrote, uh, Kurt, I, when I, it was, uh, it's funny when I wrote, uh, Curse the Frax, which is the young adult book, it was post-apocalyptic kind of world, but it, it's, it reminded me a lot of, of Game of Thrones and it was because I was reading Game of Thrones when I was writing it. <laughs> So, Funny how that sticks into your subconscious, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it just, you just can't help it. Stephen King, one of the things he said in his book on writing, said that when if you're not reading, you're not writing. And his point is that you know you've got to be able to. Re- I'm always reading something. I'm reading um, Sebastian Younger's book War right now, which is actually a nonfiction book about some being embedded him being embedded with a, with an Afghanistan with a, a U.S. Army unit in Afghanistan. But you know the bottom line is you're all, I'm all you're always reading something if you're a writer. I think because it helps you. To, to hone your craft a little bit, you know, so that's, that's kind of where I started just by what I'm reading at the time. We are speaking with physician and writer Mark Murphy on this episode of the Difference Makers podcast. Before we continue our discussion, let's pause and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor and a real difference maker in our community, Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah area or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of your propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. Now back to Mark Murphy. That's a good segue to talk a little bit about um, the current situation. And, and you're putting it, as, as I said before, and people are seeing in the paper, and our web analytics are correct, it's going everywhere. And that's your, your journal of a plague year where you're chronicling being on the front lines of, of what's happening with the coronavirus. So let's start that conversation, kind of talk. Tell, tell us about what made you decide, hey, why don't I go ahead and chronicle this and, hey, I want to share it. Where, where did that all start from? Well, I mean, you know, this, this is, uh, I mean, obviously I recognized early on and looking at the data coming out of China that this had a potential to be a, a pandemic. Um, just because of the, the way the virus spread, I was kind of hoping it would end up like SARS or MERS, two, two other coronaviruses that didn't leave their areas to a significant degree that, that they originated in. But unfortunately, this one did. Um, and so because of that, I, you know, I really recall about 
the coronavirus. I think it was late January, early February for the paper, just kind of trying to dispel the myths and saying where this was. That was before any cases were isolated in the U.S. Uh, but then when it finally hit and when it was clear to me the community spread was going on, I thought that it was sort of my responsibility to communicate um, what it was like on the inside dealing with this from the get-go, uh, knowing where this was probably going to end up and and knowing that you know people might want to have a local perspective on this. And so when I started this Journal of the Plague year, uh, you know, I say that because I think we're going to be in this for a year, to be honest, in one way or another, uh, at least until the vaccine's developed. Um, I thought about the journal, the diary of Samuel Pepys, you know, the, 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 the book that was written uh, originally by Daniel Defoe, um, who was the writer who wrote Robinson Crusoe. Uh, he published a book called Journal of the Plague. You're talking about the Great Plague of London, uh, which I believe in 1665. And it was a semi-fictionalized account uh, of, of, the, of that plague, which killed about 100,000 people in London, about, tw- about a quarter of the people living in London at the time. And I, I thought that might be, and it was a, literally a journal where he kept track of what was going on. I thought that that evolution of this in our area might interest people locally. And that's what gave me the idea of writing this. And so I've, I've actually, I've, I've just put the blog together as a blog that's going to have to be separate from the paper. It's going to have all these entries in it. And, uh, and then we've published the first two installments. And as long as I'm allowed to keep doing it, I'm, just, I'm probably going to do it weekly for now um, and just kind of keep yeah. coming back with this until, until we get through all of it. I think the worst of it, it's going to be the next two months, but, you know, and I, maybe after that, I'll back off a little bit. We'll see. Um, but that's where I got the idea. Oh, we love it. Yeah, we love it for sure. So you are on the front lines. Like you said, it's not really hit hard here. It's, um, I guess most of the experts are saying it's going to be a couple of more weeks before we see some of the surge that has been seen elsewhere. What is, uh, what is your, what's the insider's view? What, what do you like about how we're prepared? What do you not like about being prepared or, or what's being said about it, whether it's here locally or or at the national level or around the world? So three things, I think. Number one, um, just go the global perspective. I think the the United States, in particular the CDC, really blew the uh, the initial opportunity to contain this thing coming into the States, and it's unfortunate. I mean, we, we, we really should have been doing basic epidemiology on this and you know, what you always do with a new virus that has pandemic potential is you have adequate testing, you do contact tracing, you isolate people who have been exposed, and you try to nip at the bud before it gets into the country. We had the chance to do that early on, and we knew it was out there. It was downplayed, and for whatever reason, we weren't our testing. The CDC insisted on developing their own tests, and it didn't work. And they went way back to the drawing board, developed another one, and we lost valuable ground at that point. And by the time we were trying to do the things to contain it, it was too late. So from a national standpoint, that aspect has been disappointing, but it's too late now. We've got to deal with, you know, we're in mitigation phase, we've got to deal with what we've got to deal with. So now, um, I mean, the ideal thing would have been to, to hold it off until until we got a vaccine, and then we would have been spared all this, but that's the cows out of the barn, uh, so to speak. So now we're looking at mitigation. So what we're trying to do, is because, you know, the best estimates, one to two to maybe three percent of the people who get this will die depending on the patient population as opposed to 0.1 percent of the, of the flu um, and a lot of them are going to end up on ventilators um, which are in critically short supply nationally um, the bottom line is what we try to do by quotes on flattening the curve is to stretch out or delay the onset of things until we, we, as long as we can, by doing the social distancing and by keeping apart so we don't have a big spike 
in acutely ill people all at one time, which would just overwhelm the hospital system. And what we're trying to do is to not do that. I give a lot of credit to Van Johnson, the mayor of Savannah, for recognizing the risk early on and for you know, canceling. It was very unpopular at the time, canceling the St. Patrick's Day celebration. We look really pressing it now. New Orleans is dealing with the aftermath of Mardi Gras as we speak. Um, we might have been there with them at this point, but we're not. Uh, so I think that sort of thing, anything, you know, doing the, uh, the, the uh, shelter in place order early enough so that we, we may blunt the curve here a little bit. Um, so what I see happening locally is that we'll get, um, we're going to see, we're going to see a surge in cases probably will peak out in a few weeks. Um, my guess is late April, early May, based on the current projections that I've seen, we may or may not get to the point where we're overwhelming our ICUs, I don't know. We, at last I can, I saw we had 158 ICU beds in Savannah. We can certainly make other beds into ICU-esque beds if we have enough ventilators. Um, but the whole key is you don't want to overwhelm the, the healthcare system because if all you're doing is taking care of COVID-19 patients, then the traumas that come in, the heart attacks and the acute appendicitis and you know perforated bowels and all these things we normally deal with and normally get in the ICU are not going to be taken care of adequately. And so we're, you know, people in those areas are going to die. And COVID-19 is lethal enough so that, you know, that's why we're emphasizing social distancing so much is to try to not just just overwhelm the healthcare system with a tide of really sick pulmonary patients who, you know, are, are treading the board in life and death and who could infect our healthcare professionals, which can make it even more difficult to take care of people in a situation where resources are limited. Now, right now, we're just seeing the beginning of that. I, I, I think that people should be encouraged to continue the social distancing. It's, it's painful, it's boring, and it's difficult, but I think that that's the only way we're going to we're gonna keep this from getting really bad in our area. So far, we're not as bad as Atlanta, we're not as bad as New Orleans, not nearly as bad as New York or Detroit, and uh, maybe we can avoid that. How are the healthcare professionals in town ready? Uh, I know before we hit record on this, you talked about a little bit of a calm before a storm here. Is everybody prepped up and ramped up and ready to go? So here's the deal. Um, you know, the, I mean, obviously the backbone of healthcare in Savannah um, is our uh, big tertiary care teaching hospital at Memorial. Um, and that's the, the main, that's where most of the ICUs are. Most of the really sick people end up going there. That's right. That's why it's our level one trauma center. And I think they're to be commended in a great job at, of doing, um, you know, basically trying to minimize the transmission risk in the hospital, clearing out elective surgeries. And, uh, and we, we, we've all canceled all of our elective cases, um, trying to, save PPE, that personal protective equipment for when it's really needed, uh, as opposed to using it all up and doing elective procedures. Um, and they've done a good job of, of limiting access to the hospital to minimize the risk of transmission within the hospital. Um, and that's that's a big plus. Um, I think they, they've been working collaboratively with Canada St. Joe, uh, the other major Savannah hospital system to try to do a lot of the same things. And uh, I think, but right now, you know, both hospitals have have started to empty out of the elective cases in preparation for what's coming. Um, and, um, and you know, my hope is it won't be as bad as it could be, but they're ready, and I think they're getting as ready as they can be. I mean, you look, to look at how bad it could be, you just have to look at Albany right now. Albany, Georgia, had, because of a couple of funerals attended by a COVID-19 patient who subsequently died, uh, they have 500 uh, coronavirus uh, cases in their county, and that's a, they only have seventy five thousand people, and their hospitals are much much smaller than, than than any of the Savannah hospitals, and they're just overwhelmed right now, and that's where we don't want to be. So uh, we're trying to prepare for that, and every every time, every little bit we delay this, we get 
the chance for more therapies, the chance for more treatments that could be effective, the more testing could be available, the more personal protective equipment that can be utilized by the healthcare professionals here, the more ventilators we might be able to, to, to get together. So the longer we, the, we, the further down the curve we are, the better off we are as a community. And, and thus far, we've been able to do that. I mean, we're, we're starting to see it kick, kick up a little bit, but it's not nearly as bad as it is in some places now. So we've been fortunate so far because we've been had time to get ready. And that's a good, that's a big deal. Again, you are listening to a conversation with Mark Murphy on this episode of Difference Makers. We interrupt this interview to invite you to check out our latest digital initiative, Savannah's Town Square on Facebook. Obviously, you enjoy the podcast, and many of you subscribe to our morning newsletter and watch or attend our monthly Brews and Views public forums. Savannah's Town Square is your chance to sound off. Every weekday, I post a talking point on Savannah's Town Square, a Facebook group page. Those who join the group are then free to engage with me and other members of the community to discuss the topic. And unlike in comments sections and social media channels, we don't allow trolls and other mean-spirited posters to ruin what is meant to be a place for earnest, civil, and insightful dialogue. Go to Facebook today, search for Savannah's Town Square, and click the Join button. We'll get you in the conversation. Now here's the rest of the Difference Makers interview with Dr. Mark Murphy. question for you is something that I was talking to another local physician, Ben Watson, earlier this week about, and that's the lessons that we learned coming out of this, because I, I don't think it's going to be another 100 years or 102 years before we have another pandemic, is, you know, we know that we know that we weren't prepared in terms of, of beds and ventilators and other supplies. Do you see the lessons learned from this being used to to maybe make us better prepared for the next one? And what what maybe has to happen in order for for that to be embraced and to be put into a a strategy? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, we 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 are used to dealing with things that are manageable. We are used to antibiotics treating pneumonia and you know other types of infection, urinary tract infection. We're used to surgery removing cancer. We're used to things that. That, that don't we don't we're not you're not used to plagues, you know this is a plague we're not used to this we we this is the pit, plagues are biblical you, know, you talk about biblical plague the plague of locusts you know the the, the bubonic plague that's the stuff of legend you know you know that's that's ancient history even the pandemic of 1918 seems like you know a thousand years ago to some people even though it was only a hundred years ago um, so the bottom line is that, you know all that seems like ancient history but now we're dealing with a plague. In real time, and it's it is the public health care challenge of of our generation to this point, uh, and frankly, of the last century. And it's a challenge to the way that healthcare is organized in this country. And I think what it drives home is you have to be prepared for things that are not necessarily expected. You have to have a game plan in place. You have to think about the da- downstream consequences of. Of, of of what I call subsistence medicine, where you're you just keep enough in reserve. You know, you don't you don't. You, you, it's, we've always geared toward outpatient stuff lately, but we don't have enough capacity to gear up in the event something like this happens. Um, and I think the the lessons learned are to be to have a plan, to be uh, better capable of dealing with something unexpected to. To, to to be able to game up for this or flex up, as they say in the healthcare professions, uh, to, to for for a crisis. I mean, when the I'll give you an example when the when the sugar refinery explosion happened, you know, a decade and a half ago or so. I mean, we we did a great job of dealing with that, but that was an episode that happened over the span of you know one day and then a, a few days, and we had people up to Augusta and everything else, and we dealt with it. 
And we dealt with that because we had planned for trauma. We were mass trauma, something we prepare for. We, we have simulations of, you know, but we haven't had a simulation about a pandemic except the one that was done by our own government uh, back in August of last year, actually. And they said we were ready and we clearly didn't learn lessons from our own simulations. So I think this will help us to understand going forward. We've got to do a better job preparing for this kind of situation. Like you said, this is probably not the last time this is going to happen. We live in a crazy global society. People are a lot more mobile than they used to be. It's a lot harder to contain these things if you're not if you don't have a plan. And I think that's the key we're going for is we have to be ready to deal with the next one. Another piece of that, and I know it's something you feel strongly about, is trying to depoliticize this. I mean, that's one part of this that is really kind of stuck in my crawl. Is is it has become very much your ideology as to as to how seriously you're taking this and. I think that's probably hurt us and held us back. How do we get past the politics side of, of this whole deal? Well, unfortunately, you know, nowadays everything seems like it's political, right? I mean, you know, you, 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 you know, everybody views everything they do and every action through the prism of their political affiliation, and yeah, you know, that's that's intrinsically wrong. I feel like this, that was wrong. That's wrong for the country in general. Um, I think we're all Americans at the end of the day, and. Uh, and we, we need to be able to act as Americans uh, together in concert to deal with something like this and to stop viewing everything through that political prism. I think that, you know, we, we, we this just didn't go for pandemics. This goes for everything. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all Americans. I've said this over and over again in my column, and I firmly believe this. It's, it's, I mean, I, I'm a political independent. I, I, I'm someone who picks issues, you know, and this is one issue that I – have a completely objective opinion about it, as do all healthcare professionals. All of us are on the same page with this. There's not one doctor who's skewing Republican or Democratic or conservative or liberal on this because we know the data. And I think what we've gotten right. away from a society is making decisions based on objective data. We instead make decisions based on our social media impressions or, you know, the people we're hanging right. out with and, and, you know, the people that share similar perspectives on things. And that's not the right way to be when you're making big decisions. The big decisions need to be made with a global perspective in mind and with the understanding that, you know, again, we're, we're, we're Americans at the core. We should do what's best for the common good. And sometimes we need to put aside our political affiliations and, and do what's right. I mean, that's the way I was raised, and that's the way I think we ought to be as a nation. I'm not saying that I'm always correct in everything I do. But I will say that I always look at the objective data and make my decisions based on that. Well, that's something that certainly the editorial board bangs its drum quite a bit on as well, and and we're we're with you on that. But Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time today, and uh, for what you're doing in terms of of the journal. And like you said, it, it, you got a blog version of it. Just let us know where we can find it. We'll make sure we push that out too, and we'll keep looking forward to your work. And thanks, and and be safe out there. All right, you too. Take care. Thanks again. Thanks to Mark Murphy for sharing his story on Difference Makers. Thank you also to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as Savannah film and ice cream icon Stratton Leopold, Georgia Board of Regents member Don Waters, and Savannah's new mayor, Van Johnson. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post April the 17th. Thank you for listening.